This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Delve into the visceral world of hip-hop with the Gangster Chronicles, hosted by MC8 and Big Steel. It's every Thursday, a podcast that aims to unravel the intricate tapestry of one of music's most influential and misunderstood subgenres, gangster rap. Let's go. Gangster Chronicles unpacks the evolution of this uniquely American art form, offering listeners a comprehensive understanding of the significance this genre holds. Listen to the Gangster Chronicles on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Content warning. This podcast discusses violence, murder, suicide, civil unrest, aggressive policing, racism, and lynching. If you or anyone you know is considering suicide or self-harm or just need to talk about problems, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255 or text the Crisis Text Line at 741-741. Previously, on After the Uprising. I called 911 and um, all I remember screaming is my baby. All signs right off the bat pointed that this was a suicide. They feel like we don't appreciate law enforcement here. Therefore, it has an adverse effect of certain cops not being as diligent when it comes to straight up and down police work. I just know that the one detective, that the one with the black eye, did not give us his business card. Gave us a card for uh, the airport police. But at the same time, investigation of speaking with uh, the police, anyone else who's also been to the scene. I guess it's just it can kind of become sort of a self-reinforcing circle. And I will say this. Do you know how many suicides we have a year? I'm sure it's a lot. And when we have them, there is a certain amount of investigation, but it is not much more than this. What you're looking at is the aftermath of the grand jury deciding not to indict Officer Wilson. A young man found hanging from a tree in October. His mom believes someone murdered her son, targeting him. Danye became an activist in the wake of the shooting death of Michael Brown by a white police officer. That's why Melissa McKinnis wants St. Louis County Police to dig deeper into her son's death. He was not suicidal. This is After the Uprising, the death of Danye Dion Jones. People were asking, like, if there was any kind of commotion, we wouldn't hear it because we have, we, we live on a track. Like, as soon as you jump the backyard fence, you're, you're standing on train track. During our first long phone call with Melissa, we asked how a struggle could have happened in her backyard without anyone in the house having heard it. Her answer was that 
there are freight train tracks right behind their home. And when a train passed, it would be so loud that it would shake the house. When we visited for the first time, her husband Derek said the same thing as he walked us into the backyard. When a train runs, you can fire off a gun and damage you ain't gonna hear it. train went right, where yeah. it right there. It took a minute and a bit of work to track down which line ran past their home, but we eventually found that it is the Hannibal subline operated by BNSF. Hello? Mr. Williams? Yes. This is Andy Williams. He works as a media rep for BNSF. And let's just say he was certainly curious as to why I was so curious. I talked to you a couple months ago and sent you some emails about trying to find whether or not you could... Yeah, 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 yeah. But I do have a question. What difference does it make when a train went by? Basically, this person died in the backyard, correct? And the train tracks... How did he die? He died by... What's the circumstances? I'm curious. Sure. No, no, I I don't mind telling you at all. He died by hanging, and the family is suspicious that he was murdered. And since these trains run behind the house, it makes a lot of noise. So if there was a period where there was a struggle, a train going by could have covered up the sound of so the So the family theory is that somebody hung him while a train was going by, and they didn't hear it, hear the struggle. Th- that, that is a possibility, correct. Have you been back there when a train goes by? I've been to the house, but not when a train goes by. They said they uh, a lot of them go by in the night, and they said that it it basically shakes the house and that it's very, very loud within the house. Yeah. And what are the police saying? The police have ruled it a suicide, and, you know, we're digging into all the details there. Now there's some back-and-forth stuff, like there's DNA that's on the bedsheet of a second individual that never got tested. There's a lot of you know, little caveats to the case, which makes it interesting. And so they're they're basically saying not only could this train have covered it up, the sound, but these people who are involved may have known sort of a rough time frame when these trains went by. Well, the trains don't operate on a set schedule, so there's no way to predict when a train's going to come through. Okay. Okay. And so what's your, I mean, why are you investigating it? To tell the story. And the only reason I'm asking is nobody has time to be looking into this, so I've got to have some good reason other than some guys interested in, you know, I'm trying to figure out what, why you're so persistent and what it is. That, I mean, your ultimate, you know, why you're doing it. I mean, I can't give you a better answer than there is a family that is hurting because their son is dead, and I, I want... And, yeah, my brother committed suicide, so I get the pain issue. I understand all that. We've got 32,000 miles of track in 28 states and three Canadian provinces and trying to find somebody to go through some sort of records and see if there was a train that came through at a specific time, uh, you know, is, is a task. You know, I'll keep trying to get the information for you, so. I'm not in, like, a huge rush. This doesn't have to be, like, on the top of the inbox. Email me in a couple of weeks, then we'll see where we're at then. Right now, we, we're, we're just, it's, it, I can't. Do you guys try to establish time of death? No. Unlike television, we do not do that because it's not very scientific. The chief medical examiner for St. Louis County, Dr. Mary Case, had told us that they don't try to find a time of death. She said that it wasn't scientific enough and that when a body is outside on a cold night, all bets are off. Now, we we try to look at a parameter that, that might be helpful. The body temperature tells us that he's been out there a long time, a number of hours. If he was last seen at 9 o'clock and he's found at whatever time in the morning, you know, the temperature will drop a degree, a degree and a half. If you're in in temperate conditions, like in the house after you die, it'll drop that. When you're outside at 23 degrees, all bets are off. Most of his clothing, you know, he didn't, he was not heavily clothed. So all we can say is he's been dead a number of hours. It's not a recent death. We figured someone had to know how to determine at least an approximate time of death using the ambient temperature as a variable. So we started researching. We found that starting in the mid-19th century, investigators began using ambient temperature at the time of discovery as well as the temperature of a body to estimate a deceased person's time of death. 
Eventually, two methods were devised that one could plug variables into. The first one is called the Glaister equation, and the other is Hensge's anomogram. While these methods can be helpful in generating estimates, they can fail in especially cold or hot conditions. My name is Carly Burdan, and I'm a medical legal death investigator. Carly works in Newark, New Jersey, and is sent out to investigate the scenes of people's deaths. We reached out to her because in 2018, she published a research paper titled Improving Methods to Estimate Time of Death from Body Temperature. Time of death is something that's crucial, especially in homicide cases, and it's an important factor when, when solving any unnatural death. Um, body temperature and ambient temperature play a huge part. Nothing has been reliably used consistently because there's so many outside factors, including body weight, clothing, objects that the decedent may be touching. There's so many different methods, and everyone says that there's no single method that can reliably be used. So I wanted to see if I could come up with something that could become the best new method. Carly went on to explain just how she created an improved equation for figuring out time of death. So what I did was I collected data by attending scene. So on the scene, I would take the equation by plus x. Over 98.7 is going to equal y, and that was going to give me another temperature of an object proportional to the difference between the initial temperature and the ambient temperature. There's a k in there, which is volume in the third power, and surface area affects heat loss in the second power. I used weight in the power of two-thirds. I wanted to use that as value. She did math. A lot of math. The gist of her work is this. Using a large data set of body and ambient temperatures in which the time of death was known, she first modified the Glaister equation to include ambient temperature more effectively, and then used an artificial intelligence system called Eureka to generate a new, superior equation. Since she could run the equation and compare the answers given to the known times of death, she was able to check her rate of error. Eureka came closest to the actual time of death. It didn't matter even if the body temperature was 10 degrees Fahrenheit, the error was very low. We asked Carly if after publishing her paper, she knew of any other investigators who were using her adjusted Glaister equation in their work. And she said yes. My name is uh, Christian Torres. I am currently the uh, chief investigator for Bergen County, New Jersey. I uh, pretty much investigate deaths for the medical examiner's office. Over the years, you know, I have investigated about 7,500 cases. So I'm a forensic scientist. I'm always looking for the scientific aspect of the investigations. I always try to estimate a time of death to help the doctors. But body temperatures are pretty funny, you know, like they're... It's really hard to get like an, uh, an exact time of death with body temperatures. But after the equation, it, it, we were pretty much able to get a closer time. You know, they were pretty close. Aside from just body temperature, another factor to look at in assessing time of death is rigor mortis, which is a contracting of the muscles in the body for a period of time after death, starting in the head and face, and moving steadily downward toward the feet, and then back up again as the condition subsides. So rigor mortis um, normally appears after two hours, and the fully rigid state happens in between 8 to 12 hours. If you did both like the temperature equation and kind of compared that to the rigor mortis, you could be pretty confident you knew a rough time of death. Yeah, um, I, I personally would. I don't know how other investigators, doctors feel, but I could say out of mine, I would be. So if I could throw you a few data points, is it possible for you to try to co like come up with a, a, how many hours this person was dead for me? I used your, I used your adjusted equation, but I'm also stupid. <laughs> um, so I was wondering if I could throw you a couple numbers and maybe you could punch them in and see what you think. Of course. Carly was interested in Danye's case. And in the end, we sent her the full medical examiner's report to look over. We were going to talk again in a week, after she'd crunched the numbers and assessed the relevant facts of the case, to give us her opinion. In episode 3, the pathologist and the chief medical examiner, who together came to the conclusion that Danye died by suicide, 
Both told us that the work St. Louis County detectives did investigating the scene was very important for their findings. But Melissa and her family members who had been present told us that the lead detective, Timothy Anderer, was disrespectful. They asserted he was seen laughing by multiple people. They showed us the business card that they all say he gave them, another person's card they believed on purpose. And despite allegedly telling them that morning that he believed Danye died by suicide in May of 2019, a full seven months after Danye's death, he still hadn't closed the case and made available his final report, which would detail his investigation, showing specifically what work he did, who he spoke with, and outlining the results of the DNA testing on the sheet done by the crime lab. All of this made Melissa and her family skeptical that Detective Anderer ever did much investigating into Danye's death. And frankly, they thought he just didn't care. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed, cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said, my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, my name's Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. I just had a great conversation with Michael B. Jordan, and you can listen to it right now. Michael is known for his performances in both film and television. His breakout role was in Fruitvale Station, playing Oscar Grant, which earned him widespread praise and numerous award nominations. His portrayal of Killmonger in Marvel's Black Panther, one of my favorites, further solidified his status as one of Hollywood's leading actors, earning him widespread acclaim for his complex and compelling performance. In our conversation, Michael really opens up. You're going to love listening to it, and I can't wait for you to check it out. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. It's always the feeling when you're getting ready to, you know, people give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. People quit. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Margaret Atwood, Questlove, Kate Blanchett, and Oscar Isaac. If that sounds like a varied group of people, it's because it is. I always wanted to make a show where one week we could sit with a politician like Beto or Wark, the next an author like Min Jin Lee, or TV titans like Bill Hader and Quinta Brunson. Basically, this is a podcast driven by curiosity and an abundance of research. Conversations where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safdie, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, stories from the frontiers of marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Mr. Worldwide himself, Pitbull. A lot of artists in general, people that are very creative, sometimes tend to overthink. That's one of my number one rules. Don't ever overthink. You can think ahead, but don't overthink. And what I mean by that is when they start to write a record, they're like, oh, that's not the line. Oh, that's not this. Oh, it's not that. And everybody has a creative process. I'm not knocking it. For me, I just let it flow. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark, more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Police bias, whether politically motivated or racially motivated, is obviously a huge topic in America right now. What you may not know is that in 2017, a group of interested attorneys started what they called the Plainview Project. 
It was an effort to look at eight U.S. jurisdictions and to document the public internet postings of police officers that would tend to make the public feel, let's say, less than confident that those particular officers would do their job with much integrity. We spoke with project lead Emily Baker White about what she found. I went to Harvard for law school, and after graduation, I got a year-long fellowship to work at the Capitol Habeas Unit as a federal defender in Philadelphia. And so I was assigned to a slate of capital cases, death penalty cases, where our client had received a death sentence, and we were challenging the validity of the conviction for one reason or another in each of these cases. In one of the cases, I found that several of the police officers who may have had contact with our client uh, had public Facebook pages and were posting troubling material that could impact the case. One of them, the one that sort of really stuck out to me, was a picture of a police dog who was baring his teeth, um, eager to run after something. He was being restrained by an officer in SWAT gear, and there was a caption over that image that said, I hope you run, he likes fast food. And that image was troubling to me. Also, because it was a meme, it made me wonder where the officer had gotten it and whether there might be more content like that out there. And after that, I began the Plain View Project, which aimed to answer the question that that I had sort of asked after my work at the Federal Defender, how much more of this is there out there and how many officers are engaged in this kind of conduct online? Though a lot of reporting on the Plainview Project focused on racist content posted by police officers online, Emily wanted to make it clear that the criteria for inclusion in her work went well beyond racism. Up front, as a sort of reminder, the standard we use to decide whether a post should be included in the database is the same across jurisdictions. We ask this one question, is it possible that this post, this meme, this comment, etc., could affect civilian trust in policing. One of the jurisdictions the Plainview Project decided to look at was the city of St. Louis. This is not St. Louis County, which is where Melissa and Danye were living and where Detective Anderer works. But it should be understood that both the St. Louis City Police Department and the St. Louis County Police Department basically pull officers from the same pool of people. Just like how Officer Darren Wilson, the white police officer who shot Mike Brown Jr., did not live in Ferguson, Many officers who work for St. Louis City PD do not live within the St. Louis City itself. So there is no reason to believe that the findings of the Plainview Project are any more confined to the borders of St. Louis City than the officers themselves. How did St. Louis seem to compare to the other seven jurisdictions? Of the officers that we found and verified in St. Louis, a slightly lower incidence of officers were included in the database than in other large cities. However, I don't want to say that because St. Louis officers posted less of this content overall. This is not a scientific fact, but in my anecdotal experience, I tended to find more St. Louis officers posting only behind privacy settings, only to their friends than in other jurisdictions. And I don't know why that is, but it may be because they received more training or were used to more oversight given how St. Louis has been in the national spotlight for so long about these issues. We asked Emily if there were any themes that jumped out for St. Louis. So most of the content in the database, with with my caveat from before that not all of it does, falls into, into one of three sort of buckets of content. And the first bucket is, is statements, memes, et cetera, that appear to endorse or glorify violence. One type of violence that we see encouraged or or supported is police excessive force. The the second big bucket of material is material that appears to discriminate against a certain group of people, be that uh, people of color or people of minority faith. We saw a lot of very Islamophobic material in the database, and we saw that across jurisdictions. The third trend, which often overlaps with the second trend, but not always, was the use of what I would refer to as dehumanizing language about other people, whether those people are protesters, people of color, people affiliated with Black Lives Matter, et cetera. And we saw a lot of officers referring to groups of people as animals, savages, subhuman, et cetera. um, And we flagged that too. Anecdotally, I remember a few officers in St. Louis whose profiles I personally looked at and, and really saw a sort of concentrated effort to 
to do positive community relations work and, and positive community relations work within the Black community. Specifically, I think, after the beginning of Black Lives Matter in Ferguson to really heal uh, relationships between the police and, and the community. And I definitely think that that work is happening within the police department. I just also think, unfortunately, there are comments being, being made by other officers that are getting in the way of that. We told Emily that we were working on a story about the son of a prominent Ferguson activist who had died and whose family didn't believe the police did a very thorough investigation of his death. She told us about some of the content her project had logged that might be relevant to our work. There are a number of popular police memes that suggest that police will not or do not want to respond to the emergencies of people who have been critical of the police. There are memes that show a person responding to a 911 call who says, oh, I see three weeks ago you said fuck the police, so we'll be unable to respond to your emergency today. There's another meme that shows a cop laughing, having a good time with a buddy, and the caption over that is, yeah, you said fuck the police, so I'm going to finish my coffee before I come rescue your dying homeboy or something like that. And that set of images and and that theme uh, within some of the memes and the comments that we saw very, very much troubled me as a as a former habeas attorney. But I imagine is very troubling to you and this mother because some officers seem to suggest that they will do their work less well or not at all if and when their work requires them to protect people who have been critical of them, and that's obviously unacceptable. I would look deeper, if I were you, into those, into that set of memes and that thread of conversation because of how relevant it could be to the case you're working on. Detective Anderer did not have a Facebook page that we could find. However, we found that his wife, Amy Anderer, had a Pinterest page. She was also a St. Louis County police officer who works as an instructor training cadets at the police academy. Officer Amy Anderer's page has many boards for posts on things like recipes, fitness, and gift ideas. One of the boards she created was called Work Stuff, and this contained a lot of the type of material that Emily talked about documenting for the Plainview project. Some of the stuff she posted was sort of obvious, like mugshots of, say, unique-looking individuals. Other things were harmless memes that even poked fun at police themselves, like one of a police helicopter that was captioned, Holy shit, pigs can fly! Ironically enough, she even has the exact memes that Emily found troubling. The one she described with the SWAT member holding back the police dog with the caption about fast food. And the one with the laughing cops captioned, They said fuck the police, so I said fuck your 911 call. I'll get to your dying homeboy when I finish my coffee. We brought Amy Anderer's Pinterest page to Melissa's attention. After looking it over and scanning through the list of her followers, Melissa got back to us with an email and said that she had actually found that Detective Anderer, the lead investigator in her son's death, also had a Pinterest page. An examination of Detective Anderer's posts reveals several racial jokes, including a meme that shows a variety of Asian people and lists their actual nationalities, but then jokes that every non-Asian person just sees them as Chinese, as well as a screen grab from a soccer match in which Nigeria is playing Germany, and the three-letter abbreviations for each country spell out the N-word. Taken in context, with the fact that Anderer was caught on his own body camera admitting to brutalizing black protesters and seemingly bragging about it, again, what is Melissa and the rest of Danye's family supposed to think? It was, it was screenshotted and it's documented, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, it is. So if he takes it down, it doesn't matter. Um, that's how he really feels. So my thought is, why would he even care about how a young black man ends up dead? Like, why put forth any effort in finding out what really happened? I'm seeing that he wouldn't give a damn because he, he looks at us as niggers. You know, um, and I'm just being blunt. But he showed, he showed his character when he said what he said about the protesters when we were out there in Berkeley. I know I'm going probably on and on, 
I'm just saying what I'm thinking. Look, we get it. Police are people. They like to crack jokes and they like to have a laugh about their work day. Who doesn't? It's a stress reliever. But to be in the role the police are in, their salaries paid for by a trusting public, granted special privileges and powers to use violence and tasked with respecting the rights of individuals as they go about their job enforcing the law, it is, if nothing else, disheartening to know that what they find funny is the notion of violating all of that public trust, of having a thirst for harming civilians or intentionally not doing their jobs. Would you go to a dentist who thought it was funny to pull healthy teeth from your head? Or to a doctor who laughed about doing as little for you as possible? Probably not. And sure, memes people post on their social media pages aren't exactly a complete description of their attitudes and opinions. But what we find humorous is a window into our thinking. It shows what we think is at least kind of true. I spend all my time tracking hate groups, right? Not so much speaking with activists. We also talked about this issue with Heidi Barrick, who was then tracking hate groups for the Southern Poverty Law Center. Today, she is chief strategist for the Global Project Against Hate and Extremism, which she co-founded. In the summer of 2019, she told us that she had followed closely the story about police officers posting racist content on their Facebook profiles. I can tell you that every time there's a lynching, there is usually an outcry from people in the black community that weird things are being done to them. And I don't believe that that many folks feeling that way about like lack of police investigation, lack of taking the crime seriously. I don't think that can all be a mistake. And the amounts of times that we've seen law enforcement officers sort of decry Black Lives Matter makes me wonder too about biases there. And you layer on top of it you know, all this crap that we're finding on social media. And I don't think it's crazy to think that an activist wouldn't get the same service from law enforcement than somebody else. I mean, the history of law enforcement in this country is just not really good when it comes to people of color or people who challenge the police. We also know from the Department of Justice's investigation into Ferguson that that police department also was filled with a bunch of racists. And there have been some other investigations coming out of the DOJ, you know, obviously prior to Trump, that show sort of systematic racial problems in terms of the sentiments of police officers. Reading the Department of Justice report on the Ferguson Police Department, we were more than disheartened. We're horrified. Yes, it's a look at one municipality, one department, and doesn't necessarily speak to all police everywhere, agreed. But it shows what's possible, what's been documented, what's been proven to have occurred. The report is full of statements like, officers expected and demanded compliance even when they lacked legal authority. One of the report's primary conclusions reads, Ferguson's law enforcement practices are shaped by the city's focus on revenue rather than by public safety needs. This emphasis on revenue has compromised the institutional character of Ferguson's police department contributing to a pattern of unconstitutional policing and has also shaped its municipal court, leading to procedures that raise due process concerns and inflict unnecessary harm on members of the Ferguson community. It then goes on to list a host of specific examples, so if you're skeptical, I'd say just read it. The idea that was often laid at the feet, for example, of Black Lives Matter activists that you're exaggerating problems with the police and biases in police forces, I think it's pretty much been put to rest now. Maybe not by the cops themselves, but the evidence shows that these things are happening all over the country. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed, cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. 
I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, my name's Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. I just had a great conversation with Michael B. Jordan, and you can listen to it right now. Michael is known for his performances in both film and television. His breakout role was in Fruitvale Station, playing Oscar Grant, which earned him widespread praise and numerous award nominations. His portrayal of Killmonger in Marvel's Black Panther, one of my favorites, further solidified his status as one of Hollywood's leading actors, earning him widespread acclaim for his complex and compelling performance. In our conversation, Michael really opens up. You're going to love listening to it, and I can't wait for you to check it out. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. It's always the feeling when you're getting ready to, you know, people give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. People quit. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Margaret Atwood, Questlove, Kate Blanchett, and Oscar Isaac. If that sounds like a varied group of people, it's because it is. I always wanted to make a show where one week we could sit with a politician like Beto or Rourke, the next an author like Min Jin Lee, or TV titans like Bill Hader and Quinta Brunson. Basically, this is a podcast driven by curiosity and an abundance of research. Conversations where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safdie, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, stories from the frontiers of marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Mr. Worldwide himself, Pitbull. A lot of artists in general, people that are very creative, sometimes tend to overthink. That's one of my number one rules. Don't ever overthink. You can think ahead, but don't overthink. And what I mean by that is when they start to write a record, they're like, oh, that's not the line. Oh, that's not this. Oh, it's not that. And everybody has a creative process. I'm not knocking it. For me, I just let it flow. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark, more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Officers in North County police departments like Ferguson frequently don't live there. These various departments are pulling from the same basic crop of people, so just as we cannot say that the specific misdeeds of Ferguson's police department are being repeated across the greater St. Louis area, we also have to be careful about suggesting that attitudes and behaviors in one department are necessarily confined to it. For example, in 2017, when protesters took to the streets of St. Louis to demand former officer Jason Stockley be held accountable for the killing of Anthony Lamar Smith, several police officers ended up beating the crap out of, wait for it, a black undercover cop named Luther Hall. They took an oath to serve and protect the people of St. Louis. But tonight, four city police officers are off the job after they were indicted on federal felony charges. September 17, 2017. For a third night, protests erupted in St. Louis after the acquittal of former police officer Jason Stockley in the shooting death of Anthony Lamar Smith. Four city officers have been charged with using excessive force and beating up an undercover city police officer who's also a 22-year veteran of the force that was assigned that same night to cover the protests. A federal investigation was able to find that these officers had been sending each other text messages about how excited they were to get to beat up protesters. According to the indictment, text messages show that Boone, Hayes, and Myers expressed disdain for the Stockley protesters and excitement about using unjustified force against them. In one exchange, Boone wrote, quote, It's gonna get ignorant tonight, but it's gonna be a lot of fun beating the expletive out of these expletives once the sun goes down and nobody can tell us apart. The case against the officers who beat Luther Hall 
ended in early 2021, with two mistrial counts and not guilty verdicts on the remaining counts. And just like Anderer being promoted to detective immediately after the excessive force incident involving State Representative Bruce Franks Jr., one of the officers named in the indictment for the beating of Luther Hall was promoted to sergeant three months after the event. The Plainview Project database contained over 400 Facebook posts from current and former officers in the St. Louis City Police Department. In the end, two of those officers, whose posts were flagged by the project, Ronald Hasty and Thomas Mabry, would find themselves fired for what were determined to be their anti-Muslim, anti-Black Lives Matter, and pro-Confederacy posts. We tried contacting Detective Anderer for comment at his office and via his cell phone. One week when we were in St. Louis, we decided to just stop by his house. We figured we could knock on his door, introduce ourselves, and with a smile on our faces, ask if he was willing to talk to us. After all, it's not a crime to knock on doors. Jehovah's Witnesses do it all the time. Heck, detectives do it all the time. It's going to be on the left. And there's a cop car. There's a cop car. All right, so what do we say here? It's, uh, listen, I hope we're not bothering you. We're journalists. We're working on a, a story about uh, uh, the death of Donye Jones. And doing a story on Donye Jones. Um, we tried getting in touch with you through the office, couldn't. And then we were in town this weekend. And uh, we were just hoping we could catch you in person to just, you know, sit down for a few minutes and get your side of uh, the investigation and, you know, the things you saw and what you know, led you to your determinations. Yeah. We didn't want to walk up with a tape recorder in our hands. So the gist of what happened is that we knocked on Detective Anderer's door. And when he answered, we told him who we were and that we were working on a story about Donye Jones. Anderer was immediately upset that we were there. We tried to explain that we wanted to give him an opportunity to schedule a time to talk, even on background if he wanted to. And then we gave him our contact information, and he then asked us to get off his property, so we left. First, what I took from what you gave me, which was most important, was the body temperature was 76.2 degrees Fahrenheit at 7.57 a.m., and the ambient temperature was 45.5 degrees Fahrenheit at 7.43 a.m. And I also noted that the rhythm mortis was fixed in the jaw, but breakable in the extremities. Awesome. So just looking at the time frame, someone who was last known to be alive and found was an eight hours and 40 minute range. So looking at the rhythm mortis first, rhythm mortis begins in the muscles of the face and the neck, and it appears after two hours, and it's in a fully fixed form in an eight to 12 hour mark. So right there, knowing that it's fixed only in the jaw, but not in the rest of the extremities, we know that we're in a two to eight hour time frame. Then I plugged in the numbers to the adjusted glacier equation and I got 2.96 hours. When I plugged it into Eureka, I got 3.42 hours. So with Eureka, that would show that it's three hours and 25 minutes ago from when the temperature was taken. So that approximated to be around 4.30 in the morning. And this could be a little bit tricky, though, because the body did drop 22.5 degrees Fahrenheit. However, it was cold outside. He was outside, and the cold ambient temperature can speed up the temperature rate of dropping. So I found using the equation and the rigor mortis stats that it probably was about a three-and-a-half-hour time frame from when he was found. Okay. Awesome. So, that, so you're putting that roughly about 4.30 a.m. Yes, and like I said, it's hard because it was 45.5 degrees out, so the cold temperature really messes with the rate. But going off of my whole entire thesis and what I found to be true and things like that, that would be my best estimate. We thought it was only fair to present this information to the chief medical examiner for comment. Your investigator noted that rigor mortis in his extremities was, had begun but was breakable. And then I actually spoke to an out-of-state medical investigator who wrote their master's thesis on determining time of death based on ambient temperature, body mass, and temperature of body at time of discovery. And 
she generated an equation that through a computer system called Eureka that plugs in the important variables and comes up with what she has found through testing to be a fairly reliable method and that puts the, his time of death roughly at 4.30 in the morning. If you're saying that, that it goes back two hours, I would very much doubt that. Even based, on the, even based on the rigor mortis? Uh, the rigor mortis at the time that he was examined at 10 a.m. was described as moderately developed. Technically, according to the report, at about 7.30 a.m., the on-site investigator said the rigor mortis was in the jaw and breakable in the limbs, but anyway. These are not rigid parameters that we can use to establish a time of death. You can certainly do that if you like, but we're not going to be doing that. If I, if I say, well, this is the time of death, I need to be able to support that to go into court and say that if I am called upon to do that. This person that you're talking to about um, trying to come up with this methodology that she uses, you know, that is not something that is established in the scientific literature that we can say, well, here, based upon this, is how long this person's been dead. Do you use this now in your work? Um, I can on some cases. Where I'm working, our caseload is so heavy that it's not something I can use on a daily basis. But if I ever need to or a doctor, doctor asks me to, I would be willing to, and I believe it would show accurate results. So could you say that now, after she developed that new uh, adjusted Glaster equation, that it's something you use in your work? I do use it to estimate some time of death. Uh, it is pretty accurate. We're not trying to suggest that Dr. Case is wrong not to seek an estimated time of death in her cases. For our own purposes, though, we wanted to have a reliable estimate of when Donye died. And we think Carly's estimate is worth taking seriously, especially as it lines up with the rigor mortis in Donye's limbs. And that means considering the possibility that he didn't die until roughly 4.30 in the morning. Remember, he was last seen by his uncle walking out the back door around 9.30 p.m. And something we haven't pointed out yet is this. Donye's phone did not have cell service at this time. In fact, he had two cell phones, one an Android, and the other an iPhone. Apparently, the Android was newer and was the device he primarily used. But at the time of his death, neither device had service. He used them on Wi-Fi only and relied on apps to send out texts and to talk. So that 9.35 p.m. text message to his sister Malisha that said, Sorry, sis, it had to have been sent before he left the range of the Wi-Fi router in his house. Taking all of this together, we know that Danye left with his overnight bag a little after 9.30 p.m., but maybe didn't take his last breath for what looks like another seven hours. And based on the fact that Melissa thinks Danye was going out to meet a girl, and Derek was the last person to really hang out with Danye in the house, and he claims that while they watched basketball, Danye was in good spirits, we cannot help but wonder if the mystery person or people that Danye went out with that night, might be able to shed light on how he ended up dead by morning. But who is this person or people? And why haven't they come forward? Even if Danye did die by suicide, why wouldn't this person or people reach out to Melissa and tell her what they know of Danye's last hours alive? Melissa has her suspicions. That's next time on After the Uprising. After the Uprising is directed, produced, investigated, written, and reported by myself, Raina Vyshelsky, and John Duffy. John Duffy was also the editor. Dave Cassidy was producer. Sound engineering, design, and mix by Josh Condon. Executive producers were Matt McDonough and Tina Xeros for Now This, Brett Kushner for Group 9 Media, and Jess Borave was executive in charge of production. Jonathan Hartwig and Bradley Rayford were consulting producers. Eliza Craig was assistant producer and did additional reporting. Mallory Kenoy was a writer's assistant. Kristen McVicker and Taya Wilson were production assistants. And Haley Klesmer was a post-production assistant. Fact-checking by Allison Humes. Theme song and other music by Zachary Walter. Legal by Keith Sklar and Peter Yazzie. Special thanks to Ann Frado, Danny Gonzalez, Barbara Koppel, Alex Lester, Bethann Macaluso, Emily Marinoff, Ruth Vaca, and the Reporters Committee for Freedom of the Press. 
After the Uprising is a production of Double Asterisk, iHeartMedia, and Now This in association with True Stories. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook. If you have useful information about the death of Donye Jones or anything we've covered, please leave a message on our tip line at 347-674-7401. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Delve into the visceral world of hip-hop with the Gangster Chronicles. Hosted by MC8 and Big Steel, is every Thursday a podcast that aims to unravel the intricate tapestry of one of music's most influential and misunderstood subgenres, gangster rap. Let's go. Gangster Chronicles unpacks the evolution of this uniquely American art form, offering listeners a comprehensive understanding of the significance this genre holds. Listen to the Gangster Chronicles on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. Well, how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was good! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.